Wow. I think you have started every intro with wow. <laughs> this is uh, both exhilarating and exhausting doing this. These people require so much because they're all so amazing. It's like, it's like, what is it now? 200, 100 and something first dates. I think this is our 130th, I think. There we go. So, um, I loved this conversation because we didn't get bogged down in what seems obvious about it. Like we talked about it, but we didn't like, there's a kind of thing that when you listen to the episode, you'll go like, Oh, they could have easily just spent their whole time talking about this, but we didn't. We talked about what it's like to be, you know, human, human, but this, what, what her life is like basically. And, um, that's the whole point of uh, surviving is to actually have it be about the life and not about the, um, the challenge or the limitation or the thing that shows up that has us, you know, challenged. I agree. Yeah. We dealt with three, like any one of the three topics that come to my mind, any one of them could have been heavy and dripping with, I don't know, what do you call it? Shadow. <laughs> And yeah, it was, we interacted with a very light being um, who then we found out had some vibes with you, like you guys wander in the same musical frequencies. Yes. Yes. That was kind of a cool discovery right at the end. It's like, oh, wait. (laughs) That's the other thing with her. I think any one of the topics could have been a full hour of hanging out. Yeah. Um, she certainly has a lot to offer the world. The fact that she's a teacher is no surprise. <laughs> professor. Let's get it right. A professor. And uh, I think it'd be great if she could, you know, retire and do something creative instead of having to struggle so hard. Like you can really see the level of effort she's put in her life. And it really matters to her. Um, But there I go, projecting my own desires onto our guests again. (laughs) Well, with that, let's get to it. Two outlaws on the lamb, taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. And we're live on another ride with Moped Outlaws, Outlaws Mark and Greg. Crack open a bottle of Adrenochrome soda and settle in with our special guest, Martina Clark, who is streaming in all the way from Brooklyn. We have this background. I don't know if you can see it. That's the Brooklyn Bridge behind you. Oh. And um, we're going to talk about the light, funny topics of HIV and abusive marriage. It's going to be a laugh a minute, I tell you. Uh, Among others. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll get in some politics and some geography news. and (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, but um, we can even talk about 
virus conspiracy theory and the, the people that don't believe that viruses are real. Oh, yeah. Well, we certainly have a cornucopia of topics to wrap our minds around this morning. Um, Martina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We should also just mention that um, despite what it says, if for those of you joining us visually, you can see that uh, Martina is the author of My Unexpected Life. But for those of you who are just listening, it should be noted that Martina is the author of My Unexpected Life, which I think is a double <laughs> redundancy. I just twice, but neither. Nonetheless. Say it again. <laughs> Whee! Um, yeah. Gosh, we're all over the place this morning. This doesn't usually happen with such frivolity and chaos. Um, so can, yeah. Let me ask a question to anchor a little. Where are you guys? Like oh, good question. physically, or or is that? Oh, like that you want a real asking? answer? We're in Marin uh, County. I'm so jealous. Uh, I <laughs> I'm a Californian currently doing time in New York. And it feels like penance, and I can't wait to get back to California. So there you go. You've are. been in New York a long time. That's like a life sentence. It's. I think it's multiple. I don't know what my sins were exactly to deserve this, but um, yeah, here I am. Hey, it's 20, um, 20 years and counting. 21 years. Wow. Wow. Um, I noticed, because I went to your video channel first via the video you have on Podmatch. And there's only three okay. videos on there. It's, I think, um, it's Professor Martina Clark. Yes. Are you familiar with That's that my channel? Fancy. That it is. Yeah, I'm familiar. I started it and, uh, okay. there's not a lot on it. I should probably populate it with more things. Well, so there's one where you were, uh, you were practicing a live stream with a young man who referred to you as Auntie. Uh, who referred to me as Andy? Yeah, like he was a uh, like around ten, maybe. A little boy with glasses. Yes, kind of nerdy. Don't tell him I said that. Yeah, <gasps> grandson. Actually, my grandson. He called me Nana. I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And um, so he's your grandson. Is he he's the son dad. of the daughter that you, um, what's, uh, I just forgot, foster, you've. I was a foster mom to a teen when I lived in Belgium. She's now almost 40. And this is not her child. She has two of her own. Uh, but this is my partner's grandson. So not a biological uh, relation to me, but a domestic partnering ship thing relation to me very cool a choice where humans decide to be connected via the heart and exciting love as if we were all from the same biological family indeed indeed as if we were all just like human beings right maybe one day we'll get used to that <laughs> what a concept huh yeah. <laughs> so let me ask oh, you because you <laughs> talked about um being in an abusive marriage which yeah has a lot of resonance. How was it to get from that place to a place where you're in a loving, trusting partnership with someone? Ooh, uh, that was, that was a long, long rocky road. And, um, to be fair to my ex-husband, uh, he 
I learned much later was living with uh, mental illness. Um, he has uh, not bipolar. Um, my goodness, it's been a while, and I've already forgotten. <laughs> wow, it's, um, your, it's your subconscious protecting you. <laughs> it is. It is. In any case, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on the exact uh, illness that he had, but it was undiagnosed when we were married and together. And so his behavior was um, awful and erratic. And at times I felt like I, you know, I didn't know if he was going to be the funny, hilarious guy that wanted to have inflatable furniture filled with helium that we could keep on the ceiling or (laughs) if he was going to be the one who would stop in, uh, you know, the fast lane on the highway with road rage and nearly get us killed. Um, And it was it was a nightmare, to say the least. But what he did was later after we um, were actually divorced, he finally got uh, counseling and care that he needed. And he called me up and he told me, listen, I have this thing. It doesn't excuse my behavior, but maybe it will explain it. And honestly, that was the greatest gift he could have given me because I was able to acknowledge that clearly I played a role in our relationship not working also because I was I was there. Um, but it wasn't entirely my fault. It was sort of the fault of something that neither one of us knew how to navigate or could see or understand. And that helped me heal a lot. Um, that said, it still took me a very long time to feel like I could trust anybody again. Um, but now I'm with my partner. We've been together for going on 12 years. Um, Raising a grandson, his daughter is amazing, and uh, his grandson is amazing, and I love having him in our life because he's hilarious. And um, yeah, it's been a rough road, and I still, I still struggle with it. You know, I have a hard time like just trusting that you know, like the free fall. Like if I let go, he's going to be there. I think that he is, but um, but I have a really hard time letting go. Yeah, I can feel that. I can relate. Um, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, how do you take care of yourself physically when that moment comes? You feel that sense of no, no ground below your feet. What do you, what's your practice for your, um, I have kind of a weird little mantra that I, a, a gazillion years ago, I woke up and it was just like running through my head. And it is that I am held in a body of love. Mm. And I will say that to myself in my head when I'm feeling kind of stuck or scared or um, like I'm in one of those moments where I just don't know how to move forward. I sort of Mm. try and balance myself inside and and repeat that to remind myself that I'm okay. And do you use breath techniques to do that with as well? Do you have breathing techniques that you use? I... Of course I do. Um, no. We've just made it very obvious we're from California. <laughs> yeah, you know, my California card has pretty much been uh, expired for a while, so my breath techniques are out of practice also. Um, I would like to say that I have a great ritual of doing all of these healing things, but I'm actually very entrenched in the get-out-of-my-way-asshole mindset of New York. And... uh <laughs> Part of why I want to leave. <laughs> it's not helping. Thank you, California, you know? shaming me, Greg. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. 
No, I'm serious. So part of me, I, I mean, I, I definitely want to move back to California. Uh, this is jumping into some other topic, but uh, part of it is because I feel like it's much easier to be in that mindset where I have a daily practice and I can do this stuff. Whereas in New York, it's really, it's a struggle just to survive here. It's so loud. It's, you know, the, just the sound, the vibrations, I feel like are really unhealthy. And that's my inner Californian coming out saying like, oh my, the noise, man, it's bad for my health. But well, is. as a global travel, you, traveler, you've witnessed the different aspects of various environments. And if we just look at it from a naturalistic point of view, there's hospitable environments and serene environments and antagonistic environments. And there's a bunch of resilience that comes with surviving in New York. Like there's a reason they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. But at the same time, there's this ongoing onslaught on our nervous system and managing our nervous system is one of the key pieces to being of healthy mind and body. Yeah. So I, I honor your decision to come to California and we have our own brand of uh, Granola. dressers out here where the woke crowd will get you <laughs> just like, just like the forget about it crowd will get you out there in New York. The, the, Hey, is that meat you're about to eat crowd will get you out here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a difference. Um, but I still prefer California. Hmm. Yeah, me too. Were you born in California? I was not. I was born in New Mexico, uh, but we lived there only for like a year and a half of my life. And then we moved to Fresno. And after years of therapy, I can say that out loud. <laughs> so that's where I grew up. But then I lived in um, San Francisco in the Bay Area for about 12 years. And then I moved overseas. I lived there for about seven years. And then I moved to New York. 21 years ago. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I still don't like it. (laughs) That's so funny. Um, what, well, there's two questions and they're both vying to be asked, but let me ask this one. What drew you to New York? If it's so polar opposite to who you are? Um, I moved here for a job and so I was still in that marriage and, It was an opportunity to get out of that into something that at least was going to feed my soul, um, like on a professional ethical level. And so I, I moved here for a job with UNICEF and I was their um, HIV in the workplace manager for all of UNICEF in 120 countries. Wow. Small, no big deal. Um, and I was tasked with setting up a program where we would educate all of the personnel and their families and dependents, uh, about HIV so that we could deliver better programming, but also make it easier for people living with HIV who work for UNICEF to seek help and stay healthy and be able to continue working. Knowing the pitfalls of generalization, are there some countries that you can name that you found were more open and positive about accepting that AIDS is here and it's a disease to be handled in that medically healthy manner, you know, instead of like, I know here in the Bay area, you were ostracized. You were like a leper unclean and a lot of fear. Um, Oh, that's an excellent question. 
you know, I, I don't think there's any country in the world that's going to get an A plus on that scorecard. Um, just because people are human and because HIV is associated with sex and most human beings at some point in their life have sex. So it presents an issue that they're like, Oh, that could impact me. So immediately like the shields go up. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not like those people. They're somehow different than me because it's too scary to imagine that it could happen to them. Um, that said, I think, um, in many countries in Africa, it's actually, it's stigmatized, but in a very different way, you're not ostracized in the same way because everybody knows somebody. And so in some ways it's more accepted. Um, and I think people are able to deal with it in a slightly more holistic way, except for that minor detail that they don't always have the infrastructure necessary to do that in a way that actually will, will help them. Hmm. Um, that's my observation. Do you mind my asking, how did you broach the topic with your current partner? I just told him, I said, uh, you know, I, we're, I'm into you. I think you're wonderful, but you have to know this thing about me. And I said, it's, you know, but I have, I have to let you know before anything goes too far because it's, uh, for you to make an informed decision, not for me to tell you this after the fact. And he's like, I'm okay with it. You know, I, he thought about it and decided, thank you for letting me know beforehand. And, uh, and it's okay. There are worse things. I want to know if I may about your personal medical history a little bit deeper. So mm -hmm. I want to just presence that and it's totally fine for you to say you'd want to talk about this question. If, if okay. Your boundaries. There's something I see a lot in uh, advertising for different therapeutic drugs that talks about viral detectability. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd love to know if you could talk a little bit about your journey as far as the level of detectability various points in your life and whether that decreased over time and and what you think the attributing relationships are for that um did you catch all that i know a siren just went by your yeah, no again so my question is have you noticed that your viral load has gone down over time and what's the relationship between stress and then medication which do you think okay. is more of a factor okay i gotcha um yeah and i think the sirens were like the, the universe going oh this is a big question um it often happens with me yeah i can i can i'm getting that uh, so for me, I was what virologists call a little green monkey um, in that I didn't get sick, like really sick, uh, for almost 17 years. So I didn't start treatment for almost 17 years. Um, when I first tested positive, the treatment wasn't even available, but it became available in the mid-1990s and 1996 to be specific. But I didn't start until 2008. Eight. And until that point, like we'll say maybe the earlier part of 2008, my body was actually fighting it off pretty well. And my viral load stayed uh, not undetectable, but it was never 
to a point where my doctors are like, you have to start treatment. Um, but to your question, at the same time, I was traveling constantly. I was traveling like 120 days a year and, you know, not to fancy resorts, but to a lot of difficult places. And, um, and it was taking a toll on my body and I wasn't taking care of myself. I was just working, 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 working. Um, and that's when my body actually started to decline. And because I was so tired and I was stressed out because the job was enormous. I mean, it was, it was too much. Um, my body started to fail me and it rapidly went from, yeah, it's okay. I'm hanging on to, uh Oh, we're in deep trouble. And by about October of 2008, my doctor was like, you have two choices. You start treatment or you die because your viral load, I, it went from, I don't even remember the count, but it was very, uh, very low to like in the millions in a matter of a few months. And my CD4 count, which had always been very high, um, that's the, like the fighter cells that keep your body healthy, that went in the wrong direction also. And so um, I was then also faced with the complexity that because my physical health was so bad, my mental health was also straining because they're connected, right? And your body's not working, your brain's not working. And so I was having a really hard time making the decision that I wanted to even start treatment, Mm. which in retrospect is like, oh, how did did I get that far down into that awful dark spiral? Um, but I, you know, a few things shifted and I saw a therapist, which helped tremendously. And she helped me sort of think about some things that I wanted to be alive for, which were namely my nibblings. Um, I wanted to see them grow up and see who they would become. And that was sort of what I needed to get over that finish line to start treatment, Since then, partly because I had never been on treatment, so I was what we call treatment naive, my body had never like um, not responded well to something. I was able to start treatment and it worked and it still works very well for me. But I learned from that lesson that um, stress really can kill you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I came super close to not winning that little battle. Uh, And... I haven't totally mastered not being stressed by any means, but I am much more cognizant that if I don't take care of my body, then my mind is going to go in bad places and, um, and vice versa. If I don't take care of my mind, my body is going to go in bad places and I have to like keep it all together for, for myself. And now for my great nieces and nephews who are starting to emerge into the world and the grandson and partner and everybody. Um, and just to launch into a side note, COVID has actually done more damage physically to me in a short time than HIV in more than 30 years, which is a wild thing to wrap my mind around because I did not see that coming. <laughs> no, none of us did. But yeah, it's been... It's been really weird. Is that cognitive or respiratory? Both. What 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 what's that impact like for you? So for me, uh, when I I had COVID early on because I'm a virus overachiever, um, so I had it in March of 2020, and it 
it mainly was upper respiratory and then I got a terrible, terrible headache, but it wasn't to the point where I couldn't breathe. It kind of felt like I had claws dipped in acid scratching at my, my lungs, but I could still breathe. And I didn't go to the hospital definitely at my doctor's advice. He's like, don't go near a hospital if you don't have to. Cause again, this is New York city early on. It was, um, it was a zombie wasteland at that moment. So, um, I stayed home and I thought, you know, I got through it and it wasn't that bad. I just counted my blessings that I, you know, I didn't have to go to the hospital. Um, but what has happened is since then I have like a, what I call my gremlin who lives in the side of my chest. And anytime I get any kind of sickness now, it flares up and it feels somewhere between a cramp when you've been running too much and like a little potting trowel just sort of jammed in there. And then I have had a headache for three and a half years on the left side of my head that feels like like a comb got sort of shoved up under the skin. Nobody can figure it out. It's just there. It's not like insurmountable that I can't function, but it's always there and it's very annoying. And sometimes it gets worse, but it never goes away. Mm. And um, I developed an epiretinal membrane on the back of my left eye, which has required surgery. And because we were in COVID, I didn't get it seen immediately. No pun intended. And um, ultimately my vision is permanently damaged. So I see things two different sizes which is really messed up my depth perception. And also there's a squiggle on the left eye. So when I read, words are squiggly, which is kind of a problem because I'm a teacher. And also at a certain angle, like people's faces are distorted. And everybody's got like a Jay Leno chin and talks out of the side of their mouth. It's just really weird. And, um, And again, nobody can quite figure that one out. But the eye doctor's like, we're really sorry. The surgery went exactly as it should, did the best we could, but it's never going to get better. Wow. Mm. So you've just entered into this reality of cubism. That's a permanent concept. (laughs) Exactly. I live in a Dolly world. Wow. Yeah. And not parting. That's, you've got some, you know, your smile is so bright. (laughs) It's just amazing to me because, boy, you you accepted quite a bit this life. Yes, I'm ready to stop accepting. <laughs> there, there's a quote that I love that I think is attributed to Mother Teresa, but who knows, where it goes, essentially, I know God only gives me as much as I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. Have, are you a fan of Tignataro, stand-up comic? Yes. <laughs> Her bit that she got famous about where she was talking about, you know, I have cancer. And she was saying how, you know, like her mom died. She got that gut disease. She had head cancer. Like she had kind of that same thing, like, okay, God. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, that's how I feel. I'm like, ah, what did I do in some past life to deserve all of this? Um, if I'm, I have a left turn. Mm-hmm. If it's okay with everyone. You good with that, Mark? Is there, all right. So as a teacher, um, what, what level are you teaching? 
I teach college level classes, but two high school kids taking college classes early. So it's a little bit different. It's still like the academic level is college, but um, I build in a little bit of an extra bridge to help them understand the difference between high school and college so that they can uh, hopefully succeed more when they get to college. So this may not, are you involved with the um, like high school and elementary school level of the system where you live or? Nah, kind of mostly just as an observer, because I see what's happening with the high school kids I teach and also with Taylor, the grandson who's in the third grade at the school next door to us. Um, But I'm not, I'm not as intimately involved as some people are. Let me ask. So that maybe this question still is appropriate because for those who never met your grandson, he's a young man of color. And um, as I'm sure you're well aware, the diversity issue has really risen to prime consciousness right now. And from my daughter, who's just become a teacher and my own interaction with hoping to heal that consciousness that creates racism. Um, a lot of things are changing in the curriculum of the schools, like what's being read and taught. Are you seeing that happening with your grandson's education? So um, we live, well, it's a very mixed neighborhood right now. Um, and it's shifting by the day, but, Along with Harlem, the neighborhood where we live, Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant, is one of the uh, predominantly black neighborhoods in New York City. That said, post-COVID, it's like we woke up in the same apartment but in a different neighborhood because it's been um, bought out by a lot of Hasidic Jews. They've moved south from Williamsburg, so it's a very unusual neighborhood. Uh, That said, I think that his particular school um, reflects the fact that the neighborhood is extremely diverse and they go the extra mile to make sure that everybody feels included uh, wherever they are from, whatever their background is. However, he did first grade and second grade in Florida. Mm-hmm. And we have had, um, I, I sort of see him as a rescue mission. Like, <laughs> I started to explain to him some of the things that he's not learning or wasn't learning in Florida, like you know, them endorsing the idea that slavery was good because it gave black people jobs. And he's like, what? (laughs) He had no idea. um, Because are you saying that he was being taught in Florida that slavery, one of the positives of it was the people of color were employed? That is that is the current stance of the education in Florida. I am not making that up. I'm a writer. I make up a lot of stuff, but that is true. All right. I was going to send you a bag of crystals and granola, but I think we got to send it to Florida. Yeah, that it's everything. It's, <laughs> That's it's crazy. That's it's, a sickness. Absolutely crazy. And so um, I feel like the education he's getting here is good. I see the things that they send home, the books that he's given to read, uh, the assignments. They seem to be, in my opinion, very balanced and reflect the world that he actually lives in. Uh, but I was very worried about the education he was getting in Florida. Um, because they are bass backwards in my 
humble opinion. And in terms of the students that I teach uh, at the college level, as the teacher, I have control over the readings. So I have made a personal commitment to like never teach the old dead white dudes that every single person has to read because I figure they're going to get that reading somewhere else. So I try and find as many authors for them to read that are people of color that come from a different background, from a different country, from um, a different, you know, LGBTQ community, all of the things that I can sort of touch on so that they don't have to like them, the readings, but at least they are exposed to the opinions of somebody else that they might not get in the more traditional high school setting. Yeah. Um, with the influx of Hasidic Jews and the current thing going on with Gaza and Israel, um, my background, my father was Jewish. My mother was Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with an element of Zionism when I went to Hebrew school. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, does the current state of affairs, like how is that in your neighborhood? It's tense. Um, It's tense and it's not. Because I think, you know, just like the whole region historically, all of those people lived together and they got along just fine for a very long time. Um, And in our neighborhood, the bodegas, which are the, you know, sort of the corner stores, um, are not actually run by cats, despite all of the Instagram profiles. They are run often by Yemeni families and Egyptian families. And so, you know, they live right alongside of the Hasidic Jews and everybody seems to be fine. They work together. They live together. It's not really um, an issue, but it is also my understanding that the Satmar Hasidic Jews who are the people who live where I live, they are not particularly pro uh, Zionist. They, um, they have their roots very, very deep historically in like trying to find joy. If you research them, it's a, it's sort of an interesting group. Um, so I would say in my immediate neighborhood, that actually people are sort of pretty much just respectful and getting along. I haven't noticed any additional tension, uh, but the city overall is like ooh, way up. Um, lots of protests, lots of people taking even the slightest thing the wrong way or uh, accusing other people, sometimes rightfully so, of not seeing both sides. It's a, it's a hot mess. I was just talking with one of my friends who's Jewish, and he sent me a trailer that's talking about the genocide and the, um, that's happening in Gaza and the West yeah. Bank. And then I also was listening to a woman who's American and Israeli, and she was talking very pro-Israeli. And we were talking about how here's two very intelligent outtakes. And they are grounded in some real things. Yeah. How does one find a peaceful place in such volatile opposition? It's a million dollar question. Um, I think for me, I have to just pull it back to always who is the actual 
who are the actual um, malign actors, as we say in political science, behind the actions. So it is not the Israeli people who are all doing this personally on a voluntary basis. It is not all of the Palestinians voluntarily doing this. You know, this is this is Hamas and this is Netanyahu's regime. And I think they are the bad characters. And if we can stay focused on that, um, then it's easier to understand that this is a humanitarian crisis for everybody involved. And it's spilling out into the countries around. And it's not, I don't, sadly, I don't think it's going to end soon. Um, and the problem is that, of course, you know, it's, this is an emotional thing because it's, you know, we're, we're talking about it's been 30 five days or however many days it's been, but it's also been 75 years of this conflict. So it's not, it's not like it just happened. Um, and how do you find the answer? I don't, I don't really know. I, I wish I had the answer to, to this, but I was thinking about how like my whole life I've grown up with this, this concern of middle peace in the middle East. You know, there've been wars all over the world, but that one's been constant. And um, I don't know how we find the answer to this. I really don't, but I think, I think Netanyahu and his team are particularly dangerous. That's my personal opinion. And I don't think they're helping the Israelis either. Yeah. As a political scientist and teacher, you mentioned the line actors. And I'd like to ask you the question, if we follow the trail of the malign actors down to the root level. Do you think that there is a core cabal that is uh, problematic in the sense that there are structural institutions that are headed by people who've lost sight of their humanity and therefore are malign actors at a root level and are continuing to propagate that? Or do you think it's more of an environmental issue with the structure of capitalism or both? I think it's both. I mean, you know, if you take all of this politics out of it, you know, you, it's everybody sitting on oil. That's a factor. You know, that's part of why um, some countries are not calling Israel out. That's why some countries are like, we just got to get rid of the Palestinians so we can have better access to their oil. As I recall, Trump saying we should have taken Iraq's oil, you know, things. Uh, also, I have a very mouthy cat. I can hear her in the background. She, she likes to chime in. Cats are welcome. <laughs> she really cares a lot about these geopolitical things as well. She's passionate. But, um, yeah, so I think that the capitalism, the, the sort of keeping the machine fed, um, war is a profitable business, tragically. And so keeping conflicts going around the world, as horrible as that sounds, is a money-making business. Um, I think all of those things play into it. And I also think that the, you know, sort of the, the people in charge are not, they're not just acting on their own. Obviously, they're not just standing there saying, I'm going to do all of these things and I don't care what anybody else thinks. You know, they have, they have other people involved in the decision-making process and the U S government, I think is complicit in this as well. And, um, there's a deep history and 
again, we can't just look at it as one thing that happened on October 7th. We have to look back at the whole history of the region and what's been going on, what happened that prompted the Israeli state to be created in the first place. You know, it's, there's so many layers. Um, I'm not sure that even vaguely answers your question. Well, I'm going to persist. But, Is that okay? Sure. So there's this aspect of um, your life experience, which gives you a lot of insight into the functional relationships of how the UN works from mm-hmm. your perspective. And then there's the that stream of this idea that the League of Nations was somehow designed uh, to root out the idea of bad or malignant actors, uh, particularly with as relates to, you know, fascists and, and things of that nature. But um, there's some, a lot more of information is out there now, and we sort of have an information war going on that some of the concepts and theories, political theories we have, it's back to root causes that exist at the level of families that own banks and the way that those structures have played the formations of countries and inhibit the ability of countries to move forward. For instance, the IMF has been accused of being a gatekeeper on the development of nations in such a way as to put them at the fealty of large corporate interests. Mm-hmm. My experience of that theory is that it's relevant and it's pro- plausible. But with your experience on the ground, I'm wondering if you could verify that kind of idea or not. I would agree with you. Um, I think that there's a lot of truth and the IMF in particular, um, sort of to, I, I will get back to it, but when I was in, I don't even know what year, early two thousands or something, I was doing a, an assessment of the UN response to HIV in house and the IMF really stood out in my mind because they were kind of like, you know, it's not worth investing because we can always get more staff. <laughs> These are human beings. How can you not want to invest in your own personnel to keep them alive and healthy? Because there's institutional memory. There's a lot of reasons, if not just for the fact that these are human beings, right? So that, to echo what you're saying, I, I definitely agree that the IMF, World Bank, a lot of the UN organizations, um, well, particularly the IMF and the World Bank, we'll say, because they're more focused on the the economic and financial issues, I think uh, some of their functioning modalities are for the wrong reasons. And I think that that is, uh, that is problematic. And I, I absolutely um, am grateful for have had, having had the chance to serve for the UN. And I believe that the work that I did, I feel good about it. I sleep well at night. Um, that said, the UN is not perfect either. It is definitely problematic in many ways. But what I always try to explain like to my students is the biggest problem with the UN is it has a 196, I think at the moment, um, member states. So it's like having 196 bosses. So trying to get them to agree on anything is practically miraculous. And the fact that the UN is able to do anything is kind of a miracle to me. Um, 
but it keeps it from functioning as well as it should because what ends up happening, because you can't just have a meeting and say, we're going to pass this resolution. Does everybody agree? Everybody reads it once and agrees or doesn't agree, right? All of the the decisions are really made inside meetings off mic. And that's where people fight for their interests, not necessarily for the right reasons. And so in the end, like we used to joke that we should change the logo of the UN to a person with a broom because we just come in to sweep up the mess. We're not really able to be proactive because countries won't agree. And it definitely comes back in my mind to a lot of the um, political, financial reasoning that keeps keeps the big wheels turning, crushing the little wheels as it goes around. So here's my follow-up question. Do you personally have some insider inspiration that has flown from your life experience that has you want to establish a reformation of, of that institution? And how would you do it? Oof. Um, I don't know how you would do it. I think that uh, it's it's an institution that to really correct it needs to be sort of stopped and restarted. And yet I feel like as problematic and incomplete as it is, the world is still a better place with the UN than without it because, you know, there still are moments where the, the wisdom of, or the, the wisdom, but the the weight of the words of somebody like the Secretary General can maybe help to influence people's thinking. Um, And I know that on the ground, despite the big machinery, the people who work for the UN on the ground are generally well-intended people. I truly believe that in my experience of working with UN personnel all over the world. They're there partly because, yes, they're good jobs, but they're there because um, they care about the outcome because they could also get a good job with the bank or with a petroleum company or with a whatever fill in the blank and make probably more money. Um, and the fact that, you know, a hundred UN personnel in Gaza have been killed as well. And um, I just, I, I guess I just feel like you kind of have to burn it all down and start over but we don't have the luxury of a gap to do that. And so how to fix it from within? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I wish yeah, I was going to ask you that to. question because a lot of um, anti-white supremacy and restorative justice movements offer up the solution of we have to burn it down, but it isn't clear whether there's anything viable that will be left after that. And if we look at, you know, Marx's book, he says that it's an eventuality that, that, that there'll be this kind of upheaval and of ultimately an agrarianist kind of reformation that occurs in the aftermath of a massive sort of decomposition of civilization. And so I grapple with the question of what you just articulated. Is it possible to initiate a kind of healing process from within the body politic? Or is it really this thing where the first thing to do is just burn shit to the ground and then go from there? Because I, I don't think that philosophy fits with my own, but I'm a cis white 
person who has so much privilege, right? And so I'm curious, you know, how you would respond. Like you, if you had, do you think that, that burning it down is really like the forest would heal it or, and how would we go about healing from within? Like, how we yeah, I, I think, I, I think it's really, it's a, you know, it's sort of a lofty idea. I don't think it would actually solve the problem. I think Which, it would just burning it down. Burning it down. Yeah. I think it would just leave more space for chaos. Um, and fascist forces would then be able to move in with their power structures, yeah. right? Arms yeah. would become the governance of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we just as human beings have that trait like animal farm where we just keep recreating that which we were hoping to heal. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I really don't have a good answer for you this on this because it's um, it's so complex. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and working from within. Um, you know, I, I saw how again, you know, we have this idea that the UN, you know, all of these great people and they're all so well educated and they're you know they're above I don't know what some magical something. Um, and then when you get to the reality of working with people, they're just like everybody else. They're scared to death. They're afraid again, like with the HIV, which is my area of expertise in the UN is, you know, people, for example, in, in one office, we had a woman who wouldn't process payment for groups of people living with HIV who were hired by our program staff because she was afraid to have them come in her office because she didn't know. She genuinely didn't know and thought maybe if these people come to my office and I'm at risk, am I going to have to clean everything? You know, there were little things like that where people have illegitimate fears once you know, but if you don't know, they seem very real and they can, you know, they can build. And the UN is made up of this. It's made up of people who don't know everything. You know, they know the expertise for their job, but they don't necessarily know all of the other pieces and they live in a little bubble like everybody else because we all do. Um, and from my experience, like the one thing that I could always do that would break through that was to try and teach them, you need to know this so you can help your kids because everybody cares about their kids or somebody's kids. And it reminded me that as different as we might be, as different as our backgrounds might be, the places where we live at the end of the day, people are people. And, um, there are some evil people out there. I truly believe that, but I think for the most part, people are good. And I think most of the people who work for the UN are good, but they're feeding into a machine that is just unwieldy and nearly impossible to govern. Hmm. Yeah. So does that bring you to a kind of covert method of installing hope in your students? Do you kind of keep that as the flame in your heart of hearts that you would be able to breed some hope across the legacy of your teaching? I do. Um, I think my, my main goal is for them to find their voice. And I always tell them at the beginning, middle and end of the semester, do not write or you know, create a speech or do a project based on what you think I want to hear. I want you to do what you think is important. And I will grade you on how, you know, the quality of what you produce, but I'm not going to judge you 
on your thinking. I want you to think, and I want you to think as big and scary and radically as you feel comfortable doing, and then maybe push it a little bit more because you're the future leaders of the country and the world. And if you haven't developed the confidence that you're allowed to think and the knowledge to find the information, to double check things, to do research, to formulate ideas that other people will be able to understand, then I haven't helped you at all. You know, it doesn't matter about the, the Oxford comma. What matters is what is in that sentence. So have you had things turned in where you emotionally were, uh, you know, what you were reading was abhorrent, and yet it was so well academically presented that the person deserved a high grade. I have. I've had things that I absolutely disagreed with, but it was well rendered. Um, and it has been really hard to sort of say, this is awful, you're a terrible person, because <laughs> that is not my job as a teacher. But what I have done is to sort of say, um, this is excellent work. The way that you have presented this is absolutely meets the criteria. Um, if you ever want to do a counter argument, here are some points you might consider to sort of show that I, I think there are more things to consider, but at the same time, I respect that they have done their work. And that's, that's where I feel like I kind of have to draw the line. I mean, obviously if somebody said they were going to come in and shoot up the whole classroom, then I would intervene. However, I have not received that luckily. Knock on wood. We're kind of playing this game socially and evolutionarily of can the young people innovate fast enough to counteract the forces of decay that are occurring? And we've got some signs of hope. Like there's these guys that have built these plastic collection ships and, you know, there are people who are really rec reclaiming land and this idea of form to fart fork to table, you know, guard to table. And there's a lot of movements that are happening that give hope to the possibility of shifting things. And one of the things I like to point to is that no one actually wanted to market massive gluten-free products in the marketplace. Like if you'd gone to the various, you know, uh, Keeblers, the various places around, they would not have gone for an innovation just out of hand because it's healthier to reduce the amount of um, pesticides that we get through our wheat in our diet. But because the markets demanded it, We've gotten a whole lot of more of things that are produced now that are produced in ways that are less harmful to us. So I'm hopeful from that standpoint of that there's this kind of innate natural healing that wants to take place that can't be stymied and that actually becomes in alignment with economic forces, right? Like this, this idea that the market makes the decision and we just have to be making choices as consumers that we want the things that are healing for ourselves. And I think that that's the thing that's most likely to cause a hopeful occurrence to occur. Yeah. I, um, I, I will say that like my, my high school students that I, I, they give me a lot of hope because I see them, you know, at the beginning of the semester, they're a little bit hesitant to say what they think, but as a, they feel more comfortable they're like, this is not okay. And this is not the world I want to give, you know, 
grow up in or uh, take over, become in charge of. And I feel like their understanding, maybe I'm delusional, but I feel like their understanding that each person can make a little difference and that then collectively we can make a bigger difference. So I think they're, they're also seeing, um, like Gen Z members of Congress being elected. And that's inspiring. Like, Oh, that is not a 9,000 year old person. That is somebody I can kind of relate to because they're just in their twenties versus in their 4,000th year or whatever they are. Um, and I guess it, it gives me hope because they see they're not happy with the way things are, but they are very smart. And I know that we complain about them all being, um, glued to their devices, which is, it's a whole nother interview. Um, but at the same time, they're intaking so much information that I think they're exposed to a lot of things that we don't really give them credit for. And they're watching what's happening all over the world because they're getting these feeds from every place. So in some ways, as long as we could teach them how to, to have good, you know, media literacy skills and know to fact check and, all of that, um, they have a rounder view of the world than I certainly I did. I, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world except for what happened to be on the nightly news. And, you know, it was back in the dark ages, we barely had electricity. So <laughs> compared to when I grew up, they're exposed to a lot. And I think they're thinking that through and they feel very connected to people in other places too. Um, and that's, and that's largely thanks to social media. They, they sort of relate to the protester in Egypt or something in a way that uh, I wouldn't have at their age. Greg, you had a question. Well, I'm just wondering, because I was, as I was listening to you, thinking of that David Bowie song changes and how the children that we spit on are quite immune to our consultation, you know, like they know what they're going through and thinking how we have this adult thing about social media. But then I was also thinking of the Waldorf, educational system. And one of the things I heard when I was learning about media and my children are going through Waldorf is a video of a snake is not an experience with a snake. And I wonder if that's sort of the crux of a lot of the negatives with social media is that relationships are established that are not real human to human relationship. I, I would agree with that. Absolutely. I think that, that you're absolutely right. Um, there is also a sort of naive, invincible youth assumption that they know a lot of things that they don't actually know. They just know of, they know it exists, but they don't really know it personally. That is absolutely true. I think that's yeah. a important qualifier. Yeah. I just saw this video with this woman who was doing a talk, and I guess she's kind of famous for uh, going against the grain with the current fluid gender thing that's being ex consciously looked at. And this one young woman was sort of irate, like, what are you going to say to me? I know who I am. And the woman politely said, okay, next question. That was a statement. Next question. And I thought that's so perfect. To a way to handle that um, kind of yeah because it was just stating the the person didn't ask a question she yeah. just made a statement 
I think that's important that, um, you know, the sort of, um, inquiry, you know, critical thinking and inquiry is something that it's really important to teach that. Um, and I really do feel despite everything I just said and my hope for the next generation, I really do feel that, um, COVID set them back a bit with that because they were at least in New York, kids were out of physical school for a long time and uh, they don't have that. Like they, they lost a lot of experimental years, if you will, of testing ideas. Hmm. Um, they were just on their own making assumptions, formulating ideas, but they didn't have that whole, like, am I really saying something that is, am I questioning things or am I just making a commentary? Yeah, sort of a coattail on that. There's a young woman, she's in her 30s now, who just had uh, surgery to remove her breast. Oh, I'm sorry, they, her their pronouns are they, them. Mm -hmm. um, I've known her since I've known them, them since they were born. I love them dearly. And I was talking with my youngest daughter, who's about to turn 18 and a senior in high school, how with the young woman, who just had the surgery, I'm totally at peace with it. And I believe in talking with my daughter, I was reflecting, like, I know her. I know the process she's gone to that came to that decision. Whereas when I get things in the media, I have a knee-jerk response of against it because I don't know the story. I don't know that individual story. So I'm sort of making a very, um, what's the word when it's, like when you hit your funny bone or ref reactive, thank you. Reactive response. Yeah. Yeah. We all do. We're human. Uh. <laughs> come back as a rock. <laughs> uh, um, I want to go a little deeper with your personal experience, Martina, and this is a little bit of controversy. I've been sort of holding this question throughout the discussion. Um, it kind of harkens back to our discussion of viral load. And um, as a person who's positive for HSV2, uh, I've never had the expression of that virus in the show itself. And there's a lot of people who through the COVID issues that we had around whether it's real and then the vaccine question. I'm curious whether you felt after your COVID experience, whether you were inoculated sufficiently to not be vaccinated and whether you've chosen to be vaccinated and what your experience has been like around vaccination and what, what are your thoughts around people who are opposed to the idea of gene theory, or, I'm sorry, germ theory overall? I, um, I was the first one in line to get vaccinated because I had COVID and it was so, it's been so debilitating for me. Um, and I've gotten all of the boosters and I've gotten the new vaccine because I don't want to get that again. Um, and I also say that as somebody who, again, after 
nearly about 20 years of working for the UN off and on, I was vaccinated for just about everything. So partly I had to be, or they weren't going to approve my travel. So it's a little bit like people in the military where it's not entirely your choice. Um, I mean, you could refuse it, but then it shifts your uh, capacity to do your job. Yeah. So I am not averse to being vaccinated for things. I believe that the vaccines work. I have, I, I am not a scientist. I am not a public health professional in that capacity, but I've seen enough of the research to believe that it really does, you know, these, these vaccines work. Um, so I feel, I have a, a, a struggle with people who do not believe in vaccines because on one hand, I want to respect their, it's their choice, it's their body. They should be able to do what they want. I don't feel like we have to mandate every single person do that. At the same time, selfishly, I wish everybody would get vaccinated because I, I selfishly don't want to get sick from them. And I know, I truly believe that if you're vaccinated, you get a less virulent, less severe version of whatever the thing is. And um, yeah, so I, I wish everybody around me would get vaccinated. That is not always the case. And I struggle with that. And I just kind of have to bite my tongue and say, mm-hmm. okay, I will do my this, best to stay healthy. This, these issues of gender identity and vaccination, so much are of the divisionary pieces of these amp, are amplified in social media. And this is, this is causing a war. In, within the comments, right? Because people are so adamant about their position with these polarizing ideas. And so your stance of it's important to me and I respect body autonomy. Like I really am in alignment with that, right? Because you're, you're, you're taking what I would consider to be, you know, sort of the promise of the constitution, like self-determination, freedom from, or to practice religion as you see fit, liberty, all of those things. And that human, there's a human need there that's so important that so, that we are not, you know, guided by, you know, a, a rancher, a human rancher who's telling us what to do, right? Um, but at the same time, it's hard, right, to to parse all of this data with all of us shouting at each other and and canceling each other. And, you know, if you at all support, you know, the Israeli government in trying to build robust defense, you're going to get hammered right now, right? <laughs> but it's not because it's not really about building a defense, right? That's the thing is it's this is it's cover for genocide. But these, we are so hard on each other as we explore these issues together that that's creating more and more war within each other's sphere of influence. And the, I'm old enough to have experienced just the last bit of civics classes where we taught debate, <laughs> right? And I think that's one of the things that's missing from our educational facility is, you know, like, all right, you've made this argument on this paper, great. Now, you two have to yeah. switch papers and argue the other point of view from the other person's point of view. And I don't know quite how this is all going to land on a question other than 
I appreciate the reflection that I've had as a result of speaking with you. And I can sense uh, myself being called into greater courage through your story of perseverance and choosing life when you've been faced with such difficulties. And that's a reminder to me and hopefully everyone who's listening to us that you can't always see over the horizon um, uh, the joy that your life may have for you and to keep on keeping on. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's a really good reflection is that you never know what's around the corner and might be a Mack truck, but it also sure. might be a green pasture and it's worth trying to find out. Cause if it's the Mack truck, you're not going to worry about it anymore. If it's the green pasture, how glad you'll be. Yeah. Yeah. That was not super eloquent, but yeah, that's real life. I like it. <laughs> One We're day it is a Mack truck, no matter what. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. That great Mack truck in the sky. It feels like that should be a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> the great Mack oh, like truck. Mack truck by Willie at the end of the road. <laughs> I like it. So you that sounded pretty good. Have you ever done any karaoke or any singing? Yep. That's how I met my partner. I left the UN and I started a reggae band oh. and a friend of mine really? said, yeah, I was trying to pull the band together. Obviously as one does. Right. Um, yeah. And a friend of mine brought my partner. He's like, yeah, I know this great guitarist. I think you're going to love him. And, and uh, I did. I never let him leave. So, so I want to hear more about this reggae band because I was in um, exposed to reggae in the early seventies as an adolescent. I've had a love for that music my entire life. And I'm currently in two different reggae bands. Are um, you serious? So, um, yeah. Tell me about your experience wow. and, and how it's evolved. Oh, that's so good. Um, yeah. So I, my mom was sort of a mixed bag as a mom. But she was a very curious person and exposed us to a lot of things. And she loved reggae. And so we listened to a lot of all kinds of music in the house. But reggae was one of the things. And also, like, my siblings all lived in Santa Cruz. I lived in Santa Cruz at some point, And Bob Marley came to play at the Catalyst. And so there were different places in my life where reggae was sort of a thing. And then I just have always loved it. And somewhere... I. I guess really moving to New York, one of the great things about New York is it is an extremely diverse place. And the um, Caribbean diaspora here is huge and so strong. So there's actually a lot of opportunities to hear uh, live music and reggae music in particular. And I started to learn more about it. Um, I fell in love particularly with Rocksteady, which is a version that's uh, a little bit before reggae as we know it now that sort of came out of the Motown world where people were adapting um, songs and it was very popular in the UK, but I love Rocksteady and my partner loves Rocksteady. And so we, um, I had been singing in the in background in the band while I was still at UNICEF. And then when I left, started our own band and we we're called the Sangha Tones. And, um, Sangha is a Sanskrit word that means community. And so the idea was it'd be a band where it's sort of whoever's around plays. And um, we played together for a while. I ended up leaving the band because managing it was like herding cats in a shower. And <laughs> in New York, yep. there are so many musicians who want to be in a band, but they don't want to be serious or 
you know, they're just, um, you know, uh, I can't, I'm drawing a blank on the word that we use for people who just play like one show at a time and never want to be a part of an actual band. But it, it became very frustrating. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I leave it to him. He is still playing. Um, and the Sangha Tones hasn't played officially in a while, but I suspect will be revived at some point. Uh, he's more playing jazz these days. And I've always felt like he's a jazz musician trapped in a reggae world. And yeah. some people call him the George Benson of reggae in New York. Um, wow. And I'm definitely going to get your information for when we move to California so that maybe he can play in your band. Um, but it's just um, like the, the, the tagline for the Sangha Tones was music to feed your soul. Mm. And I feel like I love reggae for that reason, because it, the beat, you know, the, the one drop, the way that the beats go, it, it's a little bit more um, aligned with life. You know, it's not the syncopated. Dun, 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 dun. It, it feels like the way that life is that you're, you sort of stumble here and there. And that's how the music also feels. And I love it. I love it. It feeds my soul for sure. That's awesome. Wow. Um, wow. I'm so interested to know, do you have any recordings online? If people want to hear some of the song tones, is there a way for that to happen? Include that in any way in our release? I don't know if we have anything. Um, Sound, I'll have to have a quick uh, look. Yeah, I'll see if I'll see if there's anything still online. But um, sort of during the pandemic, we kind of scrubbed everything to start again. But uh, but I'll have a peek and see if there's anything. All right. Um, this begs another question, which isn't the question we usually ask, Greg. One more before that one. Okay. Um, uh, how does cannabis fit into your life? And do you think cannabis has been uh, something that you've used beneficially? Has it been something you've used? And do you think it's been part of the process that's kept you well? Excellent question. Um, I have not fully embraced my drug phase yet, but I'm working on it. And pretty much uh, my cannabis use is uh, gummies to help me sleep. Um, but that's about it. But I think that it's, um, it's great. It should be available for everybody who needs to use it. And my partner grew up in the islands and they grew it and would make tea out of it and use it as a medicinal purpose. And so we both value it, but neither one of us particularly partake. And he's one of the few reggae musicians in New York city that doesn't smoke pot, I think, but he doesn't have to, cause when he goes to rehearsal, he, gets all of it and comes home with the munchies anyway. So yep. but I, I totally endorse that it should be available for people. And I think it helps a lot of people. All right. Are we at our um, final question? Yeah. It's a little in apropos. Um, like maybe I should ask a version, a Jamaican version. No, 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 no. <laughs> Mark, you're always trying to, man, Mark is always trying to break tradition, Martina. I'm, I'm a shit disturber. That's true. Yeah. I gotta say, <laughs> just man, no matter how many meetings, how many producer meetings, he's just always, um, I will say like this time with you has been wonderful. If I didn't have another item on my calendar i would just spend another hour easily with you it's been <laughs> fabulous just thank you. thank you so here's our traditional final question it's of utmost importance maybe to me more than mark d 
didn't get a world. Um, Eminem or Foo Fighters? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go Eminem. <laughs> you want to um, um, wax poetic on that? No, I, I uh, this is not something I've given a great deal of thought to in my life, but I'll just stick with Eminem. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> Martina, thank you very, very much for sharing your life with us and this morning with us. And I would love if there's another one of these with you. I would love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. I wasn't sure what to expect, and it's been great. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm so glad. All right. We'll definitely keep in touch with us um, after the the show things take place. I'd love to hear from you and hear more about your music. Awesome. Do you you guys by any chance know Don Arntz? I've heard the name, but I'm not familiar with it. Who's Don Arntz? He's my brother-in-law. And, uh, but anyway, he grew up in Marin, went to San Rafael high school and, but he's probably older than you guys. Oh, okay. Do you know, um, what, do you know, have you heard of Doug Went or Midnight Dread that used to be on K-Fog? Vaguely. Vaguely. That that was a gentleman who had a big reggae presence on radio when radio was relevant. That's Mark's uncle. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll definitely um, keep in touch because I think when, when we get to California, Neil will be a great addition to your arsenal of musicians. That's awesome. Yes, I'm worthy. (laughs) Fabulous. Recording stopped.